So in our practice, uh, we're often, they're kind of consciously or or unconsciously uh, assessing how things are going, you know. And we look to the surface layer of the mind to determine how this project is going, you know. And maybe when it's, it's settled, we feel good. When there's, uh, you know, a lot of activity or sleepiness or emotional intensity, lack of concentration, we sort of identify that as a, a bad sign. And our evaluative impulse is so strong that sometimes it's almost like after each breath, we like check in to see if we've made progress, you know? You know that feeling of like, like I take a mindful breath and then I'm just like, am I more concentrated, you know, right? And it's so hard to get the sense of like the model of this path, which is so much more about, uh, it's bhavana, cultivation, planting seeds. And so, so much of what we're actually cultivating of of, of ethical, ethical goodness and patience and perseverance. We, we can't always see these things as they're developing. We can't see ourselves as we start to let go. Sometimes it's very obvious, but sometimes it's like the process through which the heart releases is gradual and not seen in the moment. But then maybe after some period, the way a lot of, a lot of the fruit of this practice has um, been announced to my mind is like, I find myself reflecting back on some way that I used to suffer. And I look at my life and I just find like, oh, that's not there so much. That's not there at all. And I don't even know when something happened, when the letting go unfolded. But I, that feels like a memory, that, that kind of suffering. Suzuki Roshi says, even though you try very hard, the progress you make is little by little. It's not like going out in a shower in which you, uh, you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you're getting wet. But as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible, but actually it is not. When you get wet in a fog, 
it's very difficult to dry yourself. So we're, we're returning uh, to, uh, to our, our lives, what we call our lives, so-called lives, unreal lives, as Brian said. Um, and, uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, uh, in some ways, it's no different than this insofar as it will, our lives will only ever, forever be sight and sound and sensation and emotion and thought. Yeah. And that's our condition, yeah. And so there's change and there's continuity. And maybe we have touched into a certain sense of um, clarified the priorities of our life in some way, or something has crystallized in the mind, some commitment, some yeah, some some new form of reassurance that we've found. And there's a question like, okay, well, how, what do we, how does our practice take shape in the world? Uh, this is Vaclav Havel. Only a dreamer can believe that the solution lies in curtailing the progress of civilization in some way or another. The main task in the coming era is something else, a radical renewal of our sense of responsibility. Our conscience must catch up to our reason, otherwise we're lost. It's my profound belief that there is only one way to achieve this. We must divest ourselves of our egotistical anthropomorphism our habit of seeing ourselves as the masters of the universe. We must discover a new respect for what transcends us, for the universe, for the earth, for nature, for life, and for reality. Our respect for other people, for other nations, for other cultures, can only grow from a humble respect for the cosmic order and from an awareness that we are part of it, that we share in it, and that nothing of what we do is lost, but rather becomes part of the eternal memory of being where it is judged. Ram Dass said, the, the quieter you become, the more you hear. So what, what do we hear? We hear our own cries and the cries of the world. If we focus only on the, the subtleties of our experience, a practice can become 
self-centered, self-absorbed, the kind of underbelly of uh, a kind of narcissism that can infuse practice. And um, we don't want to be, um, yeah, there was sometimes I, I get concerned that certain aspects of the teaching um, feel compatible with a form of passivity or uh, yeah, just self-involvement. I remember there was a, at a Buddhist uh, teacher's meeting, um, one teacher was talking about the kind of like, uh, uh, the, the beauty of the kind of compassion practice and the depth of uh, open heartedness, the boundlessness of that feeling. And, um, and this other, other uh, it was Bhikkhu Bodhi, who was a, the kind of uh, other person in conversation. And Bhikkhu Bodhi was just like, um, you, you have to do something though, you know? It's like it's not, it's, it's not disputing the beauty and value of purifying the intention to care, but he's like, you have to do something. Now, the other side is if we only focus on others, we never see ourselves deeply and never know what is possible in the heart. So um, I, I want to, to unfold some of this and the ways our practice takes, um, spills out into our lives and it spills out both in terms of our, our interpersonal life and then the values and commitments we make to be of some benefit. So uh, Rob Berbia said that, um, uh, an insight teacher, he said, um, said that insight is actually only the beginning. You know, you have that moment of clarity or something arises and you just like, and that the insight it has, it has a, this kind of, this very interesting effect where it's like all of a sudden the kind of pieces fit together differently. And it feels like, how could I not have seen that? And then something clicks in and it's like, maybe something we had known intellectually, but all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, this life is precious or I will die or I want to love, yeah. And something just crystallizes and it has a kind of, it like frees the mind in a moment, yeah. But that's actually more the beginning rather than the end, yeah. And so we have to actually move into our lives and 
practice our insights. The insights are not going to feel as fresh in every moment as they might in this one, yeah. Or as they did yesterday, or as they did in some sitting or something. But then what would it actually be like to live as if that wisdom were so? even if it feels like the, th- the heart's thread of connection to it isn't as strong, what would it be like to live as if the kind of cruelty of our mind, our self-harshness were uh, not true? How can we actually live what we have known even when it starts to fade, yeah? How can we consolidate our insight? And so we actually, this is part of our task in reintegrating is we, we, we experiment with what we have seen Now, as we, um, as we contact ourselves more and more deeply, what, what starts to happen is like, you know, like how long can we sense into our own longing for happiness before we start to see that in the eyes of others. As we actually touch our own suffering and the capacity to be more and more free and at ease, that kind of deep contact with ourselves uh, is, is the seed for a, for a kind of the heart opening to the being of others. where we share the, like, we can know that we share this longing to be safe, happy. And so we start to actually uh, trace out the kind of implications of that seeing. And part of how our practice spills into the world is, is our ethical conduct, that kind of, that wish, like may, you know, may I be a refuge for all beings, yeah? That, that line, like, uh, you know, I, I, I heard a, a line from a, a monk early in my practice, like may I be safe for all beings was the language of it. And um, as Dawn said a, a couple of days ago in the, in the metta practice, it's like, um, yeah, to, to be, uh, as, as we become safer in our own experience, we become more and more of a refuge, safe for other beings. And 
the kind of um, deviations that we make from our own deepest ethical commitments, we, we can learn from them. They're a guide in a way to where the heart is still not free. So I, I really take my sila um, and the, it's like my own kind of shortcomings as like really important data for what is still, where there's still clinging. And as practice unfolds, we start to get more and more sensitive to the kind of karmic reverberations of our actions. And so it's, um, it's like the, the instant karma of our conduct becomes more apparent. And so that, that um, it's like the system is just more sensitive and we can really start to attune almost instantly, like to when we're a little off. The teacher here, Sylvia Borstein says, sometimes what, like she notices she's saying something that's like off and she just like has a practice of just stopping herself mid-sentence. You know, and just, it's hard to do, right? Cause it's like, we're kind of like committed to our aversion, you know, like the, the ball is rolling or whatever. And it's like, there's something almost shameful of just being like, I'm completely confused right now. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, to actually have that kind of, yeah, a certain kind of courage of just like stopping. We, we serve uh, by uh, uh, not merely our ethical conduct, but just how we, how we relate interpersonally. Like even if our life is, is, is like completely dedicated to um, a particular cause and serving that cause, a lot of the impact of our life is not, not merely in service of that cause, but all the kind of effects we have in our social circle, yeah? So we can be working on like the most urgent, beautiful humanitarian project, but a lot of the impact of our life is just in the simple kind of interactions that seem beside the point to the grand plan, but actually are at the center. And so um, this realm of like practicing in interactions, it's uh, practicing with others, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's like beautiful and liberating and humbling. And uh, thinking about Stephen Levine, he said something like, uh, he said uh, this about, uh, he said, your, your parents push your buttons because they installed them. <laughs> 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 right? It's like, 
so much of our, you know, our like our the the deepest habits of our mind are born out of like relationship, right? And so it's like the the habit energies are are really really strong there, and um, and it is a deep service to transform our interpersonal being, yeah. So that we offer uh, safety and connection, so that we attune. But it's it's intense. Um, in uh, in uh, a couple of years ago, I was in uh, a training training group, and the teachers had us like pair up with uh, with fellow trainees and um, and like gaze into their eyes for like a long time, <laughs> and. Um, and the woman I was paired up with, like we were totally, you know, like close and we loved each other and it was like a simple kind of relationship. And um, and like I'm looking in her eyes and uh, um, it was just so intimate. It was almost unbearable, you know? And it felt like is this, is this legal? Are we, are we cheating on our partner? Like what's how, like what's going on here, right? And that was after like three seconds, you know, right? And so we act like it's not a big deal to like be with other people, you know? But we're only ever like, four seconds away from that kind of intensity, yeah? Right? It's like very evocative. And part of what happens um, is tied up with this, um, um, with this theme that, that Brian and I spoke of yesterday, that the gaze of the other is, is, is it's so, poignantly evokes the sense of self, of being someone being looked at. And um, that's a very powerful field, yeah. Especially if one has, uh, you know, seen contempt, it looks of contempt in the eyes of other from others. But even even when there's open heartedness, just the gaze falling upon us is so evocative. And so we actually start to use some of our inter like we actually start to use the interpersonal realm as a way of seeing the architecture of our self-view. We start to learn more and more about who we take ourselves to be based on what's evoked. Yeah. And when I was looking at that friend in the eyes, like I could feel there are these waves of like the sense of self just 
like crescendoing and then the dissolution of it. And then there's just looking and I don't know if I'm looking or being seen and I don't know where I am or where she is, where I end. But we start to see like, okay, what what happens? How does my self constellate in these interpersonal interactions? And um, over time, as we practice with some of the themes of loving ourselves and letting go of the self-identification, this, this is important because our we usually talk about fixed egoic clinging having implications for ourselves and suffering for ourselves. But importantly, the more deeply identified we are as being this and not that, that, ha- that leaks out into our interpersonal life. Right? And so other people have to accommodate for the fragility of our self. Yeah, does that make sense? It's like, you, you know that sense of where you're kind of like tiptoeing around the egoic sensitivities of another and you have to sort of shape your own being in order not to hit on the pressure points within them. And so as we begin to, uh, to let go, um, it's like the, there's less and less egoic pressure that leaks out and requires adaptation from the other, yeah? They're like, they become more and more free just to be. And when I'm with somebody who, who I just feel like is very, um, very open, um, it's like, um, it's like being with space. Yeah. And there's a real actual sense of safety in that, in feeling like there's nowhere that can there's nowhere that um, can provoke, uh, you know, the ego makes us defensive and defensiveness is often enforced by aggression. And so the, the more we feel like, oh, somebody is actually Now, it's different than condoning anything. That's not what I'm talking about. But the sense of like the absence of of, uh, needing to defend one's self-view opens incredible space. And... uh, we talk about the teachings on not self, but the other side is the teachings, uh, we maybe say not other, the not self of the other. And 
the way in which we actually like freeze the being of another that I alluded to and the way we want to to hang our our anger or our blame or our love on the coat hook of their being and it's not there in the same way we think and it makes hate much more difficult that understanding but we can still love deeply So this is some, some of the practice that feels alive in the interpersonal realm. And then what about, what, what else, what other implications are there for our ethical life? Um, Shantideva, somewhere, somewhere Shantideva said something like, um, Uh, like I think speaking to their own mind, like mind, you do not belong to me. And I don't know all that's meant by that, but the way I heard it in that context was like, I am so deeply devoted to compassion that it, it doesn't even make sense to call my mind my own. It's like it it belongs to it belongs to compassion. And so um, Brian shared about uh, you know the kind of some of the gorgeous grand. Um, aspirations that expressed often in Tibetan tradition of like uh, compassion to save to save all beings. You know, even even if the sun rises in the west, the the bodhisattva has but one way. Yeah. The the one committed to um, uh, non-suffering has but one way. Uh, radical compassion and um, I I kind of reflect like okay what what is a what is that what does that mean what does that look like like what is a the bodhisattva the the one like committed to the awakening the freedom of all beings you know uh, what 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 does that look like? It's it's such a gorgeous ideal, and the heart rises up, and it inspires good deeds and the avoidance of harm. But like, what does that look like? And um, in in college, um, I, I read. Um, it's very, yeah, very impactful book by a, a philosopher, Peter Unger. And, um, and he made this, uh, this kind of argument that, um, 
that the the kind of the way we live in you know in industrialized society the amount of wealth present and he is speaking about the united states uh, and the uk uh, the amount of wealth present uh, means that like the question is what what does a hundred dollars do for me versus for those in the most urgent need on the planet and he made the argument that um, uh, that we really actually, you know, that me, I privileged just the most modest increases in pleasure or safety or security over dramatic suffering of others. And it, it, it kind of induced a little, uh, uh, not a little, it was like a, a sense of moral incoherence in my life. Like, I, I, I think we, we probably all feel like we want to be able to defend our life, you know, and, and we want to, to think of ourselves as ethically uh, wholesome, yeah? And... And, um, and in a lot of respects, I could, def- you know, could totally defend my ethical life and how, you know, just trying to, to be good, you know, and, um, but there was something about the, that sort of like radical argument, uh, that, that induced a sense of moral incoherence. I could no longer actually justify my life. Like it felt morally indefensible for me to, even though I, I, I yeah, I've never had a lot of money. I, I, and I haven't lived an extravagant life, but I, the, the amount of money that I might spend on a dinner or something or pleasure of that kind, it was just like, I didn't think twice about it. And it seemed completely ethically defensible. Yeah. But then it, they kind of asked the question like, all right, what is, what is, what is mine? Like what, what can I actually, what is ethically justified in keeping given that I have more than I need to live? And I kept that question kind of open and, um, and I also forgot it. And it was some years later that I, I, um, the question kind of re-arose and, um, and it re-arose in the, as like, okay, what, what is the bodhisattva ideal? And um, I, I've been very compelled by, by the, the logic of um, this movement that some of you are familiar with of effective altruism. And that um, tries to do, to ask the question like, what's the most good one can do with their life. 
And it's so interesting because it's like, it's, it's, it's super, it's like dry and scientifically oriented and a lot of statistics. And it's like so different than, um, so different than like the, the juicy grandeur of like the bodhisattva language. Yeah. But it's deeply moving. It's deeply moving. So this is um, this is from uh, Will, Will McCaskill, who is uh, a very young professor at Oxford, and um, and this sweet nerdy guy. And I I skyped with him once, and I you know is like I just you know just to see what he. He, his um, commitment to like, you know, just like doing the most good he can in this lifetime. And it's like, he's this like sweet nerdy professor and there I am on Skype and I just start crying when I see him. And it's like, <laughs> you don't cry with philosophy professors. <laughs> But uh, it's just so, so moving, you know, like you talk, talk a little bit about mindfulness and practice, whatever. And, um, but I just felt like, oh man, like how did you arrive at the depth of this intention? It's so beautiful. Says, um, this is for the Center for Effective Altruism. Most of us want to make a difference. We see suffering, injustice, and death and are moved to do something about them. But working out what that something is, let alone doing it, is a difficult problem. Which cause should you support if you really want to make a difference? What career choices will help you make a significant contribution? Which charities will use your donation effectively? If you don't choose well, you risk wasting your time and money. But if you choose wisely, you have a tremendous chance to improve the world. Effective altruism is the use of high quality evidence, careful reasoning to work out how to help others as much as possible. Its purpose is to help you figure out how you can do the most good if you're reading this, then you're probably astonishing well, astonishingly wealthy in global terms. For example, if you earn the typical income in the US and donate 10% of your earnings each year to the Against Malaria Foundation, you'll probably save dozens of lives over your lifetime. This is such an astonishing fact that it's hard to appreciate. Imagine if one day you saw a building burning, kicked the door down, ran in, and rescued a small child. You'd feel like a hero. It would be one of the most important days of your life. What the evidence shows is that you can do that every one or two years for the rest of your working life.
So what's ours? What's ours to keep? What legacy do we want for our lives? What's the good life? And we have to find our way. We have to find uh, ways of, of, uh, of serving that we connect with. Yeah. Ways of, of contributing to the welfare of other beings that feels um, like it maximizes our own strengths somehow. So there's no prescription, but um, we can start to appreciate the, the indivisibility of happiness and open-heartedness. That, that a kind of, the fantasies of like a, of a close-hearted happiness um, start to crumble. And uh, as our practice unfolds, um, people will uh, appreciate yeah, they'll appreciate you in a lot of ways. And um, Norman Fisher, the Zen teacher, wrote a book on actually a, a Tibetan text, a series of slogans called Training and Compassion is the text, the book he wrote. And... Um, um, he said something, I think this is maybe the last of 49 kind of practice slogans. And uh, it says that the title is, um, Don't Expect Applause. It says, um, although we can enjoy the applause that we'll probably receive for practicing it, practice mind training not for the applause but because we know it's right, we know it is necessary, and anyway, there is no choice. When people applaud us for our wonderful achievements, really what they are applauding is not us and not those achievements. They are applauding life, they are applauding goodness, they are applauding their own lives. They are plotting the human capacity to appreciate something wonderful. So it's good when they applaud, 
let them applaud and we will graciously accept it knowing what their applause really means. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.